0: But as you turn back to Romans chapter 15, let me ask you a question. What will your story be? The story you'll tell about how you got there. There. As you stand in that great crowd, among the great multitude, too many to count. As you hear the sounds, the shouting, the ecstasy of a people from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages as they, as you, join together to cry out before the legions and the massed ranks of worshipping creatures. What will your story be? As you stand among the crowds of those who declare the glory and the majesty of the God who owns you, who has saved you, who has bought and paid for you with his own blood. As you declare together with all the saints that the Lamb of God has done it. What will your story be? When you turn to your neighbour and you tell him with the deepest joy, with the tears on your face which your Saviour will soon wipe away, you tell him how you got there. And you tell your great story, the story of how God got you there to see him finally face to face. And you listen and you hear the sound of countless voices retelling their story, their path to that place. And you hear how how Peter went on a young person's summer camp in Scotland where he sat under a shady tree and he heard his own school teacher encourage him to put his trust in Jesus. You hear how Hisong came one dark rainy night into the international cafe in the city they once called Sheffield and you hear as he tells again how he met Helen, how Helen told him for the first time his need for forgiveness which only Christ could meet. You hear how Sokriaska from Cambodia who'd seen his whole family massacred been forced to flee his village, his country How he came to meet Chuck, who told him about the God who cared for him in his pain. What stories we will hear. What stories will be told of how God gathered his people together for that great day of worship. And how we will marvel on that day as we see this. As we see what it truly means for there to be only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. On that day, we will see those from all the peoples, all the nations, all the tribes, and they will all together declare that Christ and Christ alone is their merciful Saviour. And as we stand there, we will see, I suspect, one face. One face which will tell the story of how great Our God truly is. We will see at the front of this great crowd, this multitude of every colour, language, tribe and caste, people from all the ages of human history, one man, one man who will be standing in awe in front of his Saviour, his own flesh and blood. For we will see the man called Abraham, the man whom God gave the name which means father of a multitude, the man who, as he looks and remembers that day when his creator gave him a promise, when he, an old man, a very old man, who, though blessed with wealth and servants, carried the burden of his childlessness. And we will hear as Abraham turns to his saviour, his offspring, and gives praise after praise after praise to the awesome, promise-making, promise-keeping, faithful God. And this Mission Sunday, this day in which, as a church family, as a small gathering of those destined to join the multitude, we are called to remember that our God, Is the God of all peoples, that our Saviour is Saviour to all nations, that our gospel is their gospel too. And tonight we will see that we are a people who will declare God's praises on that day because God keeps His promises. And because God wants all the peoples of the world, not merely our nation, our people, our tribe, but all nations, to love and adore him for his mercy. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 15. And we're picking up Paul's letter to the Romans towards its end. And we pick up a letter which has been the rock upon which the Church of Christ throughout the ages has built its vision and understanding of the Gospel. Yet it's too easy for us to neglect Romans as the letter of a frontier missionary, going to the peoples no Christian had yet gone, a man who had no home to speak of, except those into which he was invited or from which he had to escape, who speaks of carrying money, but not for his own purposes, But to relieve the poverty of others, a man with no steady income or secure professional profile. Romans is the letter of a man who is heading to the edge of the world. And so, who better to help us grasp the riches of the gospel as it lights up the furthest reaches of our world? Who better to help us to see the full scale of God's fulfillment of his plan? to create from one man a multitude of people, a bursting, thrilling mix of nations who will gladly bring praise for eternity to their God and who better to help us see who we are in this unfolding drama, to see how we can live, how we can work and give and pray in preparation for that great day of the Lamb. And from chapter 12, Paul has been laying out what it means for his readers, these Roman Christians, to live in this world, what it means for them to live in peace with each other. And he sets out what being a Christian looks like, what it looks like for them in their relationships with those in authority, what being a Christian means for whether they pay their taxes, for the way they respond to those who persecute them, for the way they treat those who sit at their tables and eat with them. And in this, Paul is doing the work of the missionary theologian. He is helping these believers in that city of empire, that great capital of nations, Rome, far from Israel, far from the redemptive scenes of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Paul is helping these believers to place themselves in the grandest of narratives to see what their new status as Christians means, as they have suddenly been connected with, suddenly a part of their creator's ancient and most surprising of divine acts, to make a promise to Abraham. A promise that through him, blessing would come to all peoples on earth. That a blessing would come to peoples whose levels of depravity and wickedness could barely be imagined the kind of peoples who, given half the chance, would kill their creator. And now Paul is carefully helping these Christians in Rome to see how it is that the God who had covenanted himself to Abraham, who had committed himself to Israel, who had made salvation possible through the death of the king of the Jews, how all of that was now their story, How Abraham's God, Israel's God, and there are no other gods was now their God. In a newspaper interview that I read this week, uh, the World Cup uh, football winner, Xavi, is a midfielder for Spain. He's one of the supreme talents in world football. Uh, He spoke about the intensity and meaning of what it means to play for Barcelona. And Barcelona is a local football club, but it represents a nation. And it's a club which in recent years has set the benchmark for football excellence as it's won trophy after trophy. And Javi spoke of how when a new player comes to the club, whoever they are, wherever they've come from, they're first of all sat down and they're told about what it means to become part of this team. How it means becoming part of a tradition, a tradition in which you play good football Exciting football, football which will bring glory to the great city of Barcelona. And then from that day on, they are coached as they now wear those unmistakable colours of red and blue stripes, and they are coached to become more and more a Barcelona player. And as they play, as they play with their teammates in front of the massed crowds of thousands, the glory of Barcelona is displayed in all its beauty and power. And throughout the world, the name of Barcelona is adored. And every missionary knows what this means. What it means to sit down in a village hut or a dusty, hot city cafe and slowly lay out to the newest believer from the next nation on God's list And carefully explain that now you are wearing Christ's clothes. You are now part of Abraham's story. You are now living for the glory of Israel's God. And as you live more and more like the person Christ has saved you to be, the more glory will come to the name of your Father in heaven as all of creation looks on and marvels at his greatness. And so we see in verse 7 that Paul first gives these Roman Christians the central gospel reason for their new kind of living. He writes, Accept one another as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And then in verses 8 and 9, it's almost as if he can't stop himself. He lifts their eyes to the fact that their new life, this new living, comes to them because they are now a part of God's ancient plan a plan to bring glory to himself in all the world a plan which he initiated which he began with the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12:3 to bless all the peoples of the earth a promise which he confirmed in Genesis 17:5 and 6 to make Abraham the father of many nations So as Paul writes to these Roman Christians, Gentiles, people from the nations, as he commends them to live lives in which they accept one another as Christ accepted them, he sees with absolute clarity that the presence in Rome, in Rome, that city of human pride and godless ambition of a community of Gentiles who live like Christ, because they have been saved, justified by their faith in him, what glory this brings to God for his faithfulness. What praise comes to the God who has finally fulfilled that ancient covenant with Abraham. And we can imagine how Paul, that most learned of Bible scholars, would have trawled furiously through Israel's scriptures to find These list of verses which he pours out in verses 9 to 12, verses which once, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, would have meant something very different to what he now knew they meant. How the Gentiles, the nations of the world, those nations which will stand behind their father Abraham on the last day, how they have now been freed, By the service of Christ to the Jews to bring praise and glory to the God who has shown such unthinkable mercy to them in all their brokenness and rebellion. How Paul would have marveled at the way that his God, the God of his fathers, was now actually being glorified among all the nations of the earth. And that this was always God's plan. This was always the plan which was first told to Abraham, which would see God's own son become the offspring of Abraham, how God's own eternal son became a Jewish man who came and laid aside his majesty, assuming the body and life of a servant, offering himself even to death on a cross. And as Paul prays in verse 13 for these Roman Christians to be filled with all joy and peace as they trust in God, imagine his delight as he remembers again how great this God is, what this God has done at great cost to himself to make his glory known among the nations. And as Paul continues, we're given once more a vision of God with his people, It's a vision of God gathering for himself from all the nations, a people in whom he will take great pleasure. A people who no longer live in fear or ignorance of their God, but who have been prepared to enter his holy presence. And as they enter, they will be received, welcomed by none other than their God. It's the vision in which which we see that God's mission to the nations is a mission, as the the second point in your outline says, is to see a people offered to him. And it's a vision in which Paul identifies himself as one who has been given the task of assisting in its fulfilment. So he writes in verse 16 of his calling to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And here we see how God is creating for himself, through the proclamation of his gospel, a people from the nations, Gentiles, who will be righteous enough to be presented to him. And it is a glorious image. As Paul describes his priestly duty as one who, in speaking of Christ, in urging the Gentiles to trust in the gospel, he brings God to the people and the people to their God. Not standing between God and man as a mediator, no, never. Rather, as the one who carries the message of the one who stands as both God and man, Jesus Christ, who alone achieves their reconciliation. And this image of the Gentiles, the nations, being brought into the presence of their God, an image in which we see the welcoming hand of God should captivate us. It should thrill us. As we think of what these Gentiles once were, what we as Gentile sinners once were. Paul has described already in Romans, in, in painful detail, in chapters 1 to 3, the full measure of this sin. How the world became full, ever more full of idolatry, ever more abandoned to the consequences of its rejection of God's good rule. And now Paul is joyfully announcing how God's mission to the nations is bringing about a people who will one day not stand accused of godless pride or selfish ambition, but instead stand in front of God and to his praise and glory not be ashamed of their sin, but rejoice in their Saviour who has brought them there. But this will not only be a future day, though it will be that. No, this is a day which has already begun, a day which may even have begun at the very foot of the cross, when that centurion guard who commanded the very death of Christ saw how he died and believed. For Paul does not imagine that these Gentiles will please God only at the end. He's already urged them at the beginning of chapter 12 as he began to lay out For these Roman Christians, how they should now live in such a way as to worship their God. So, how they now ate with their brothers, how they now treated those who persecuted them, how they now reacted to those who troubled or angered them. In all of these ways and more, these Gentiles who had been saved by the gospel were now free. Free to offer themselves to a God who would receive them with joy. And how this should transform our vision for world mission. How this should change the way we think of God's purposes for the nations. To imagine how God would take delight, would take pleasure in gathering to himself people who are transformed by his gospel. Chained, changed from those in bondage to sin, entrapped by demonic powers and futile thinking. How awesome it is. To imagine God's joy as He receives into His presence people from every nation, as Saudi, Sudanese, Uzbek, English enter no longer as enemies of God but as friends. There will not be a nation from which God does not receive an offering, and the more who come, the louder will be the hymns that sing praise to his name. And yet as we close, we are mindful of those nations which are as yet untouched by the glorious message of Christ, as yet unreached by the message of this God of mercy, And this is what drove Paul forwards as he, apostle to the Gentiles, sought to fulfill the promises of Isaiah, the ancient promises that those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. It's estimated that there are around 6,800 unreached people groups in the world today. And that the vast majority of these live in the poorest parts of the world. These are peoples in which there is no community in which God's mercy is praised and adored. And yet, according to God's promise to Abraham, all peoples will be blessed through him. And according to John's vision of the day in which the Lamb of God will be revealed in all his glory. Peoples from all nations, tribes and language will be there. But you may be sitting here thinking, what does this mean for me? Well, for some of you, it may mean that God will ask you to go, to leave this place, this church family. And he may be asking you to consider leaving the comforts we enjoy and to go to a people in which you will need to live a simple life, a hard life, a life without the securities of a doctor down the road or a good school for your children. But you feel that you need to go, that you will seek God's help in sustaining you in order to go and tell those who have not yet seen. But for most of us, we won't go. So what do we do? Well, let me say, if you are a praying, giving member of this church family, you're already involved by your prayers and your giving. You are taking part in God's mission to the peoples of this world. For like the church in Rome that Paul wrote to, the church which he, in verse 24 of the letter of the chapter, he writes to support him in his plans to travel to Spain the church in which he he calls upon them to assist him. You are part of a church which is doing this. This is why we devote ourselves to supporting mission partners around the globe as they seek to plant churches among peoples where there are no churches. In Austria, among the Tengir of Central Asia in the Indian Ocean Islands, as we partner with those who support Christ's global outreach in South America and the Middle East. That's why we work to bring the gospel of Christ to international students who come every year in their thousands from around the globe. These are not sideshows for us as a church. And with your prayers and your money, you are already a part. And yet, is there more we can do? Or well, there are ways in which we can become more involved more committed, more serious about God's business of spreading the glory of his name throughout the unreached peoples of the world because we can pray more. And if you don't know where to start, let me suggest you get hold of a copy of this book, Operation World. Uh, It's for sale over in the uh, bookstall at the end of the service. And with this you can start praying every day for a different nation in the world. Pray with more knowledge, with more passion. And even if you don't go to another country, let me say that you can still take the message of Christ to the nations here in this city. You don't need to travel far to find peoples who as yet have no story to tell. In this city there are many who come from other nations Do you notice the mums at the school gates from Libya, Malaysia, Morocco, Japan? The mums who are invisible to most, but not to God. Pray to the Lord of the nations and go for it. Ask God to open a door for the gospel and talk to them. Do you notice the cleaners in your offices? Do you wonder if anybody has ever told them, has told their people, that God has shown his infinite power and mercy in the death and resurrection of his son? And do you notice the women veiled in black? Do you see them and first of all worry about the influence they have on our nation? Or are you first of all thinking, Do they know? Do they know who their God really is? Has anyone told them? I don't know how, but Lord, help me. Christ will be glorified among all the nations. And on that day, what stories will be told of how they got there? As we gather together with Tengir, Uzbek, Austrian, Somali, what stories will they tell as together we stand behind our father Abraham and proclaim the mercy of our Savior God? What will they tell of our part in getting them there? Let's pray.